Please do join me in taking out your Bibles once again and turning to Acts chapter 26. As we turn to God's Word, let's turn to Him once again in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we just sang these words that our hope is in no other save in Thee. Our faith is built upon Thy promise free. O grant to us such stronger hope and sure that we can boldly conquer and endure. Father, be pleased to use your word now as applied by your Holy Spirit to strengthen your people, to conquer the sin that they battle, that they can endure difficulty, distress, and that we would all, through your word, be encouraged to continue to run the race that you have set before us. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a song that came out in 1969 that I used to listen to um, quite a bit in years past. I hadn't thought about it in a long time except thinking about this passage. And the song title is Nothing Succeeds Like Success. Nothing Succeeds Like Success. And of course, that's not just the title of a song from 1969. It's a saying that I think many people believe that success feeds upon itself and that success just continues to grow built on what went before. But I want to ask this question, in Christian ministry, in the church, what does success look like? Now in baseball, success looks like a 333 batting average, doesn't it? I mean, going to uh, bat and one in three times going to bat, you get a hit. I mean, that is all-star material on a consistent basis. That's success as a batter. And remember Paul in Athens back in chapter 17 when he's speaking at the Areopagus at at Mars Hill. um, The response to his speech we read is some people reject his message. Other people wanted to hear more, and some believed. There, Paul, as it were in ministry, batted 333. Some rejected, some were unsure, wanted to hear a little more, and some believed. Think about Jesus and his ministry and success. Jesus encountered what? Faith and unbelief. He was both received and rejected. I mean, Jesus, the perfect preacher, the one who practiced what he preached, success maybe looks a little different than what we may think of when it comes to success. And he explained it to his disciples via the parable of the soils, that a man went out to sow seed. He says that's the word of God. And he explained the condition of the heart being the different types of soils. So in Christian ministry, again, what does success look like? Success looks like faithfully proclaiming the faith, the faith once delivered to all the saints, as we read in Jude, and trusting God to produce the results. 
Paul tells the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 3 that he watered, excuse me, he planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. He labored, but God produced. Acts 17, going back to Paul's time there in Athens, shows us three responses to Paul's preaching. And today's text, Acts 26, 24 through 32, I believe, will show us in a bit more detail three ways people respond to the proclamation of the gospel. Uh, Not just three ways, but three types of people, three kinds of people. Well, how did we get here? Well, uh, last week we looked at the first 23 verses of Acts 26, defending the faith. Now, remember, Paul is being pursued, he's being persecuted and he's being prosecuted by his own people the Jews and yet God in his wisdom and sovereignty has the Roman government protect Paul provide for Paul and Paul as a Roman citizen takes full advantage of those means of God's provision He's been arrested, he's been on trial before a Jewish council, before now a couple of Roman governors. He's now before a Jewish king, Agrippa. And remember that uh, Festus, the Roman governor, doesn't want to send Paul to Caesar without some kind of explanation of who he is and what he's done. So he he brings, you remember in that meeting uh, where uh, Agrippa and Bernice, the the Jewish king, came to meet with um, uh, the Roman governor. He uses this as a time to... um, help prepare this letter. He knows that the Jewish king can help him write and send a letter to Caesar. We saw last week that Paul in that time thus far was practicing what he preached in his defense before the audience, really the audience of one Agrippa, but others were listening in and he provided both an argument and an appeal to believe the gospel. So as he's defending himself, as he's defending the gospel, he's nonetheless making an appeal for people hearing him to believe the gospel as he declares the need, the method, and the ground of salvation. Well, today we're moving from defending the faith to commending the faith, and we will see a stunning altercation. Uh, Imagine this is a courtroom. It's not a courtroom. It's It's an audience hall, and Uh, It's not a legal proceeding, but again, uh, Festus wants to give Agrippa, the king, information. And so, you know, Paul is in the dock, and and Agrippa and um, Festus are kind of on the bench, and yet, all of a sudden, you see a conversation, a heated dialogue going back and forth between the bench and the dock. You see, Paul's defense is interrupted. And we will see a dialogue between the governor, between the prisoner, and between the king, and then we'll see the hearing conclude. Join with me now as I read verses 24 to the end of the chapter. And as he, that is Paul, was saying these things in his defense, Festus, that's the Roman governor, said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. 
For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. When the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Well, here at the end, verse 31, we get the verdict. For the third time, Paul is declared to be innocent. A Roman governor and a Jewish king had earlier concurred that Jesus of Nazareth had done nothing wrong, had not deserved death. You see, Paul is following in his master's footsteps. What has happened to Jesus is happening to Paul as well. The verdict is made, but Paul will soon board a ship and he'll sail toward Rome. It recalls his encounter with Jesus in the vision in chapter 23 where Jesus says, so you must testify also in Rome. It's the divine must. It's the will of God that cannot be, um, uh, cannot be turned from. Here in what we just heard and what we'll explore are three ways to respond to the gospel. Three types of people, three kinds of people. Uh, go back with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that was read a few moments ago in our New Testament reading. Listen again to verses 22 through 24. Because who do you have in the audience? You have Jews. You have Gentiles. You have Paul. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Did you hear it? Folly to the Greeks, folly to the Gentiles, a stumbling block an obstacle in the way of the Jews, but for those called, what? The power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul would write to the Roman church about the gospel, that he was not ashamed of the gospel. Why? It's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. He writes to the church in Corinth that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Our text, as we look at it now, indeed does present, as we will see, three responses to the gospel, to the preaching of Christ crucified and risen. First, we'll take a look at one way, and then we'll consider another way. And finally, we'll turn our attention to a third way, a way where the power of God and the wisdom of God are made known. 
So one way to respond we see in Festus. One way to respond to the gospel Festus shows us. What does he say in verse 24? In response to Paul preaching about the resurrection, the fulfillment of promises in Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah, what does Festus say? Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. It was fun to look at other translations. Paul, you are beside yourself. Paul, you are insane. Paul, you are mad. The word is mania from what we get mania and manic and other related words. You see, the only way this Roman Gentile, this this king, excuse me, this this governor, the only way he can rationalize his rejection of the message that that Paul has been proclaiming is to, to declare that the messenger is insane. The messenger is mad. This talk of resurrection, Festus is thinking, is incredible. It is not credible. It's, it's intolerable. Now, what does Paul say in response? Well, unlike Festus who yells out, Paul, I think, calmly says, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. See, Paul knows that the, the gospel, it, its veracity and its rational soundness committed is reliable because it's a message not just made up out of thin air it's a, it's a message based on an objective historical fact a public event a testimony of witnesses every time easter rolls around i'm always encouraged to read that the resurrection of jesus had more eyewitnesses the resurrected christ had more eyewitnesses than almost any other event in antiquity If it was a fraud, it would have been discovered. No, it was objective fact. Jesus of Nazareth, the one the Romans and the Jews crucified, came back to life. You know, Paul meets the risen Christ, and those of you that are Christians know that you've met the risen Christ as well. Um... But one way that just discourages me to no end these days is when professing Christians can't distinguish between truth and falsehood out in the world today. Uh, The world rightly says a square has four sides and a Christian may say, no, it doesn't. And the world looks at the Christian and goes, what? You know, if we're going to have success, to be sure it's the Lord who changes lives and hearts, but if we're going to have success presenting the objective truth of Jesus of Nazareth, crucified, died, buried, and raised from the dead, we've also got to be fairly clear on what is true and false in the everyday world. Like water is wet, up is up, and down is down. Don't ever think that being truthful in the little things is not important. It'll help give you credibility and an audience for life and death matters. Jesus Christ and the gospel. See, Christianity really does make sense. It will stand up to public scrutiny. You know, I believe it was Josh McDowell. He wanted evidence that demands a verdict. Well, he found the evidence because it's there. It's there. We believe because of facts. We believe because it's true. Well, Paul turns from Festus to Agrippa. He, he, he's 
before this Jewish king who, although he's corrupt and his whole family dynasty is corrupt, nonetheless, he's got an interesting reputation for being pious. He, he knows the scriptures. He, he knows the traditions. So Paul turns to Agrippa as a witness, not only to the soundness of his mind, but also to the soundness of, soundness of his biblical rationale for believing in Jesus. That Jesus, yes, indeed, does fulfill the law and the prophets. We'll talk about Agrippa here in a moment, but going back to Festus, you're insane, Paul. You're mad. You're beside yourself. You are out of your mind. For the pagan, for the irreligious, for the rational, secular man, the gospel is foolish. It's folly. There's a pride of intellect. I am not going to lower myself to believe this. So one way to respond to the gospel as we see in the life of Festus is to think of it as folly. That's the way the irreligious, if I can characterize them, see it. Everybody's religious, but in terms of a formal kind of religion. So before we move on, let me ask this question. In what ways do you still believe that the gospel is foolishness? It's a question that I have to ask myself, especially when ministry gets tough. Especially when I'm at and others are at crossroads where should we go this direction or that direction? This direction sure seems easy. But this direction is hard, but it's right. I got to believe that no way is the gospel foolish. No way is it folly. It's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. The governor has spoken. The prisoner has spoken. And now the king will speak. And so another way to respond to the gospel we see in Agrippa, a, a Jew. And the gospel is going to be a stumbling block for him, a stumbling block for the, for the uh, religious. Look again in verse 28. Agrippa says this, In a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? Now Agrippa faces a dilemma. I mean, Paul puts him, as it were, in a trap, in a dilemma. If he says no, if he denies the faith in the prophets, then what? He's going to anger the Jews because they believe the prophets. But if he says, yes, I agree with the prophets, then he's going to lose face because Paul then is going to say, well, then you need to believe the gospel. Because the Hebrew scriptures point to Jesus. It points to the message of salvation through the promised Messiah. But Agrippa, the king, sensed that neither answer would extricate him from the dilemma. It's like that old Southwest ad, right? Want to get away? He wants to get away, and so he delays. He's too embarrassed to give a direct answer. He's too proud to allow Paul to dictate the topic, so he takes evasive action. He sidesteps with an answer of non-commitment. He's got sophisticated avoidance maneuvers here. 
You see, whereas the gospel is folly to the irreligious or folly to the, um, the pagan, to the religious, the gospel is a stumbling block. You see, Festus wanted to be his own Lord. And here, Agrippa is kind of thinking that he wants to be his own savior. He's got a pride of position. I, I'm not going to succumb to this belief in Jesus of Nazareth as the one the prophets look to, the one who fulfills the law. No. For Agrippa and for others in his wake, the gospel is a stumbling block. So before we go on, let's ask ourselves this question. In what ways do we still see the gospel as a stumbling block? One day we may see the gospel as a foolish message. Another day we may say, oh, it's true, and if I believe it, and if I move forward in line with it, it's going to cost me, and I'm just not going to go over that obstacle. So here you have an unbelieving Gentile, an unbelieving Greek, the Roman governor Festus, and you have an unbelieving Jew the king Agrippa, and even though one is Jewish and one is Gentile, one is king and one is governor, you see they're more alike than they are different Um, because there have been and there still are and always will be two main ways to avoid Jesus as Savior and Lord. One way is to be very bad. And break all of the rules so that you can rule yourself. Another way is by being very good and keeping all the rules and becoming very self-righteous. You see, our rebellious and wicked human hearts go one way or the other. Or if you're like me, at times, it's a combination of the two trying to rule myself or save myself. And we see that being illustrated with the king and the governor. You see, on the one hand, there's irreligion. There's hedonism, pleasure, relativism. There is no truth. On the other hand, there's, there's religion, there's moralism, there's legalism. And both irreligion and religion, both license and legalism are both ways to avoid Jesus as Savior, as Lord. I think it was Flannery O'Connor in her book, Wise Blood, said something along the lines that Hazel Motes learned that the, that, uh, the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. Let that sink in. The way to avoid Jesus is to avoid sin. Otherwise, you don't need saving. You don't need ruling. You see, what is needed for Festus, what is needed for Agrippa, is not some kind of outward behavioral change, not even the outward behavioral change of mouthing the words. No, what is needed is a complete transformation of the heart. 
You see, the ways of Festus and Agrippa, Gentile and Jew, irreligious and religious, are two ways to respond to the gospel. But, and this is the good news, there is a third way. It's not a halfway house between each extreme, nor is it a compromise between the North Pole and the South Pole. Rather, it's what Christianity was viewed early on as a tertium quid, a new, a third way, an entirely new way of responding. Because you see, believing in Jesus and the gospel creates an entirely new person from the inside out and from the ground up. And so here with Paul, we see a third way to respond to the gospel, to believe it, to receive it. What does Paul say in verse 28? Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Now remember Paul's calling. Remember what he's doing. He's been called, and we read this in Acts 20, 24, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Here he is fulfilling his calling. He's attempting to persuade the king and all others to turn from their sin and put faith in Jesus the Messiah. He wants people to become such as I am. Do you want other people to be like you? Not agree with your every opinion, but, and not really necessarily have the same gifts and abilities that you have. Otherwise, what a bland world it would be, what a bland church. I mean, just like Jason spoke a couple of weeks ago on um, uh, the, the, um, the way of love. You remember Paul is talking about the body, one body, many parts. And, and Paul's not saying be like me, an evangelist. Be like me, a preacher. No, he is saying, be like me, a Christian. So ask yourself again this question. Do you desire others to be like you? What is it? Follow me, Paul says, as I follow Christ. Could we say that to other people? Hey, follow me as I follow Christ. I think one reason, one hesitation I have to not say that as often as I should or directly as I should is at that moment, I may not be following Christ. I may be following something or someone else at that moment. Well, who is Paul? Who is he? He's a Christian. He's someone who's had an encounter with the risen Christ you see, his relationship with Christ is the source of his contentment and his confidence, his humility and his boldness. Who does Paul say that he is in Christ? Let's read just a moment. Let's, uh, let's eavesdrop on some of his letters to the churches. First of all, Paul says what? Become such as I am. And who is Paul? He says, in Christ, I'm a new creation. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. What a 
glorious declaration. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. My friends, do we believe that? Do we believe that in Christ we are new and we are continuing to be remade and reshaped and refashioned? So Paul says, in Christ, I am a new creation. I'm forgiven. I'm clean. But he also says to the Galatian church, in Christ, I am loved. Remember what he says in chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. Paul says, I'm dead. But then he goes on to say, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I once was dead, now I'm alive, he says. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Every time I read that, I am shocked. Amazing. Doctrine, who could write better than Paul? Who could express that he is personally loved by Jesus Christ better than Paul. I think it was in that series in Galatians, we made the statement that you have to take justification by faith personally. It's not just a great doctrine to believe. It is. Don't hear me say what I'm not saying. It's the hinge upon which true religion turns, as Calvin would say. Justification by faith, but Paul took it personally. He knew the love of Jesus. Jesus himself speaks of a commandment that you would love one another just as I have loved you. The reason it's a new commandment because no one had ever seen anybody love the way Jesus loved. Greater love has no one than this, Jesus said, than someone lays down his life for his friends. Jesus would show the full extent of his love for his people on the cross. So Paul says, be like me. I am a new creation. I am loved. And finally, he says, in Christ, I am free. Galatians 5.1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. He goes on to speak of freedom, not to indulge and serve the flesh, but rather through love to serve one another. Isn't that interesting? Stand firm in freedom. Be, as it were, a slave to freedom. Be unmovable when it comes to the freedom that we have in Christ. Paul says, I'm a new creation. I am loved. I am free. I'm in these chains, but my audience, I am freer than any of you can imagine. So a Christian is a new person loved by God and now is free to serve God and their neighbor. See, a Christian is secure in their relationship with God. A Christian has nothing to prove they're secure in their relationship, and so they have everything to gain. So ask yourself now or later today, ask yourself if you believe yourself to be a new person who is loved by God. 
and who is free. Well, let's wrap up by circling back to success and then by making an appeal. In one sense, Jesus is not successful, right? Judas betrayed him. Peter and all of the disciples abandoned him in his hour of need. You would think that a good teacher, a good master, a good leader would would have all of those who follow him tight and in control. I, I guess Jesus, I mean, the rich young ruler walked away sad. But I want to argue now that Jesus bats 1,000. Every time he gets up to the plate, Jesus gets a hit. Because we read in John 6, 36, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. What a great promise. What a great promise. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever, 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 Jew, Gentile, king, governor, slave, servant, woman, color of their skin, it doesn't matter. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That's batting a thousand. You know, Agrippa said at the end, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Yet, my friends, the good news of the gospel is that all of those who appeal to Jesus will be set free. Because all, for all people, all will be forgiven. Everyone who repents and believes in the gospel will know new life, new love, and new liberty. Have you heard Jesus call you? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. How does Jesus give us rest? Rest from our striving, rest from our labor, rest from our efforts. How? The writer to the Hebrews says that through death, Jesus might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver or free all of those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus meant it when he said it, if the Son sets you free through his perfect life of obedience, through his sacrificial atoning death, through his victorious resurrection, through his guaranteed and promised return, if the Son sets you free, free from being afraid of death, free from trying to measure up, free from trying to rule yourself or to save yourself, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. So my friends, our last question is this. Unlike what Agrippa said, hey, he'd have been set free if he didn't make his appeal to Caesar. 
Our text, the scriptures, God's word, the gospel says. If you appeal to Jesus, you will be set free. My friends, don't be like the people that don't come to Jesus and therefore don't have life. Be those who come to him and have life in him. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you how this narrative account of the Apostle Paul before a Roman governor and a Jewish king preserved now for our benefit through the centuries helps us understand how people respond to the gospel. Oh, Father, all of us in way, one way or the other are, are extremists. We either want to rule ourselves or we want to save ourselves. Father, help us to, uh, to not scoff or to not sidestep, but help us to surrender to Jesus and be saved by him and ruled by him. Father, help us this day and all our days to know the one more and more who loved us and gave himself for us. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.